You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's January 15, 1845, at Brown's Hotel in Beltsville, Maryland, 12 miles outside of Washington. Democratic Congressman William Lowndes Yancey of Alabama relaxes in the hotel parlor on the first floor. His legs are propped up on a coffee table. He smokes a cigar and reads a newspaper, surrounded by colleagues and friends. Well, did you hear the news, boys? Yancey holds up a copy of the New York Tribune. New York papers say, I'm the talk of the town. With a smile, Alabama Congressman Reuben Chapman holds up a different publication. Don't believe everything you read, Yancey. This article says you're already dead. Well, no doubt a Whig editor indulging himself in wishful thinking. (laughs) Yancey seems to not have a care in the world, which is odd considering he's come to Beltsville on a bloody errand. He's in town for a duel with a Whig congressman from North Carolina named Thomas Klingman. Yancey called Klingman dishonest on the floor of the house and Klingman demanded satisfaction. They're set to meet on the dueling grounds in less than an hour's time. Have you any fear, Mr. Yancey? From what I understand, Klingman doesn't even know how to use a pistol. A bit womanly, he is. (laughs) Yancey, though, is no stranger to violence. A few years back, he shot and killed his wife's uncle in a street brawl. He was tried for murder, convicted of manslaughter, and served three months in jail before returning to Congress. There, he insulted Klingman's character on the floor of the House. Yancey refused to retract his statements, and Klingman issued the challenge. One of Yancey's friends, an Alabaman named A.B. Meek, raises his glass and offers a toast. To Congressman Yancey, may his aim be true. Well, here, here. Their toast is interrupted, though, when the front door of the hotel bursts open. A group of policemen flood inside. Yancey and the rest leap to their feet, panicked. There's no doubt who the police have come for. Congressman Chapman leaps into action. Mr. Yancey, take to the stairs. There's an exit up there. As Yancey and his men make a run for it, Chapman grabs Meek by the arm. We must forestall them, Mr. Meek. I'll follow your lead. You there. State your name, sir. Chapman calmly sets down his drink. Reuben Chapman of Alabama, this is Mr. Meek. How do you do, officer? Congressman Reuben Chapman? The very same. Where is Mr. Yancey? That I can't say. You are aware that dueling is outlawed in this state. I know nothing of any duel, officer. (sighs) We know Mr. Yancey is traveling with you. If you tell us where to find him, we'll let you go free. Well, perhaps try Washington. I hear he works there. Steaming with rage, the officer turns back to his men and barks his orders. Arrest them both. But while Chapman and Meek were being detained, Yancey and his men snuck out the back of the hotel, narrowly escaping arrest. They ran through stretches of fields and woods until they reached the prearranged dueling grounds where Klingman and his party were waiting. The policemen tracked Yancey all the way to the dueling grounds to try and stop the bloody affair, but they didn't get there in time. When they arrived, the duel was done. At 3 p.m. on Monday, January 15, 1845, two United States congressmen from opposing political parties stood back to back, walked 10 paces, and fired. 
Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost, and recently they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. The Yancey-Klingman duel ended without bloodshed. Both congressmen walked away unscathed with their honor intact. The duel was personal, but it was also political. Their heated words grew out of a fierce debate over a divisive political question, whether to admit Texas into the Union as a slave state. Texas was, of course, ultimately admitted, but the process revealed a nation fractured along regional lines. The South largely supported the expansion of slavery. The North opposed it. In May of 1846, the issue cropped up again when President James K. Polk declared war on Mexico. If victorious, America stood to gain two massive new territories that would increase the size of the U.S. by 20%, Alta California and Nuevo Mexico. The South largely applauded the move. Many in the North saw Mr. Polk's war as a Democrat-driven scheme to expand slavery. In response to these rising tensions, Polk sought to end the war quickly by asking Congress for $2 million to buy Mexico's surrender and the two new territories. The appropriations bill passed the House, but it stalled in the Senate, 
caught in an endless debate between the pro- and anti-slavery factions in both parties. To break the gridlock, a Northern Democrat from Pennsylvania named David Wilmot introduced an amendment to the Appropriations Bill. The Wilmot Proviso, as it was known, called for the prohibition of slavery in the new territories. The bill and the proviso would never make it out of the Senate, in large part due to Southern resistance. Polk would have to beat Mexico on the field of battle. That bloody conflict would have unintended consequences. It would give rise to a national celebrity who threatened to pry the reins of power from the Democratic Party, Whig General Zachary Taylor. This is Episode 16, 1848, Cass versus Taylor, Old Rough and Ready. It's just after dawn on February 22, 1847, outside a U.S. military encampment near Saltillo, Mexico. Almost a year has passed since the beginning of the Mexican-American War, and in Saltillo, there are roughly 4,700 American troops. Opposing them is a massive contingent of Mexican soldiers, 20,000 strong, led by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Just outside the American camp, a staff officer rides his horse in a full gallop. He has in his possession a very important dispatch, terms of surrender from General Santa Ana. As he rides into camp, he heads directly for the officer's quarters. He dismounts, ties up his horse, and bolts into the officer's tent, where two generals stand waiting, General John Wool and General Zachary Taylor. General Taylor, are you bringing us his terms? The staff officer hesitates for a moment. General John Wool, second in command to General Taylor, barks at him. For heaven's sake, speak up, man. General Santa Ana is demanding our immediate surrender. Santa Ana is a fool. What else does it say? The staff officer steadies himself. He's exhausted. Santa Ana kept him waiting for hours, and he's not sure how General Taylor will react. If we surrender, General Santa Ana will spare us slaughter. If not, he promises we will be cut to pieces. General Taylor reaches into his pocket and pulls out some chewing tobacco. Is that all? He also assured me that you would be treated with the consideration of one of those belonging to the Mexican character. What do you think, son? The staff officer freezes, unsure of how to proceed. Me, sir? Yes, you. The staff officer looks at General Wool for a sign of help, but doesn't get any. So he screws up the courage to speak. We should make preparations and bring the battle to Santa Ana at dawn. We have enough men, sir. We can beat them back. General Taylor strides over to the staff officer and places his hand on his shoulder. I like your thinking, Sergeant. Would you do me a favor and deliver a message to the esteemed General Santa Ana? Yes, sir, of course. What shall I tell him? Tell him to go to hell. Taylor slaps the staff officer on the shoulder and returns to his business. I suggest you get a move on, Sergeant. Yes, General. The staff officer mounts his horse and gallops off into the night towards the Mexican lines to deliver General Taylor's message. There will be no surrender. Santa Ana will have to fight. Outnumbered, General Taylor used artillery to repel Mexican forces at the Battle of Buena Vista and help bring about Mexico's surrender. His victory there also solidified Taylor's reputation as a national hero. But already, momentum for General Taylor's presidential candidacy had been building for months. In June of 1846, a large group of citizens met in Trenton, New Jersey, on the site of the famous Revolutionary War battle. There, they declared General Taylor the people's candidate for president. It was a historic moment, the first popular presidential nomination in American history. And after the Battle of Buena Vista, Taylor mania swept the country. 
One Whig newspaper wrote that Taylor, the hero of Buena Vista, was heart and soul a Whig. Another wrote that his candidacy would destroy the monster that was the Democratic Party. The pro-Taylor movement gained traction all across the country, especially in the South. Taylor was a war hero, to be sure, but he was also a slave owner, born into the plantation aristocracy. His slavery bona fides gave many in the South confidence that Taylor would protect Southern interests in the White House. So not long after Buena Vista, Whig members of the House and Senate began campaigning on Taylor's behalf. They used the press as a vehicle to push Taylor as the Whigs' most viable option for the 1848 election. Still, the Taylor mania masked some serious issues. The people knew Zachary Taylor the general, but few knew Zachary Taylor the politician, and almost no one knew Zachary Taylor the man. Zachary Taylor was a problematic candidate. A career military man, he had never held public office and knew next to nothing about the workings of government. In fact, he had never even voted in a presidential election or any election. In addition, the Whigs had been vocal in their opposition to the Mexican-American War. Nominating the hero of that war had the definitive whiff of hypocrisy. And as to slavery, what made him popular in the South gave many in the North pause. As one anti-slavery newspaper wrote, Taylor was a slave owner and a slave breeder. He would be the warrior of the promoters of the extension of slavery. But Taylor supporters tried to use his non-political military background to their advantage. They attempted to portray Taylor as a second George Washington, a man above partisanship, a general who had no ambition for the office and who would only serve if the people demanded it. As to the slavery question, Taylor supporters stuck to the old adage, the best comment is no comment at all. In his public remarks, Taylor would avoid the issue of slavery's expansion and, where possible, he would keep his opinions to himself. In 1847, the Wilmot Provisor had failed to pass the Senate, but the measure still had life. There was a strong chance the Wilmot Proviso, or something like it, would find its way to the desk of the next president. This possibility would cast a shadow of the election of 1848, and with the end of the war in sight, and with Alta California and Nuevo Mexico hanging in the balance, many Americans demanded to know, where did Zachary Taylor stand on the expansion of slavery? In the summer of 1847, the editor of the Cincinnati Signal sought an answer to the question, was Tyler a real Whig? Whigs believed that Congress, not the president, should control the reins of government. The Signal demanded to know, as president, would Taylor let Congress exercise the wishes of the people, or would he impose his own will? The Signal wrote, all we ask of the highest office under the Constitution is to bow to the will of the people and restrain the executive. Taylor's response was cagey. He replied that he was not at liberty to discuss his opinions on subjects of public policy. He had no aspirations for the presidency, but if the country called him to the office, he would not refuse. Many Whigs were distressed at Taylor's evasion. In July of 1847, one Whig newspaper in Pittsburgh wrote, General Taylor cannot be the Whig candidate unless the Whigs abandon all their principles. After Taylor's letter was published in the Signal, Democrats saw blood in the water. They pointed to Taylor's non-response as clear evidence that the Whig Party was trying to make Taylor a puppet to use his name and reputation as a tool to achieve their political ends. In July of 1847, the pro-Democrat Detroit Free Press wrote that the American people would no longer have to hear about Taylor being a good Whig because Taylor, the Free Press explained, was not a Whig at all. The Democratic press also had a warning for Democrats who were tempted to see Taylor as a viable option for president. 
In August of 1847, the pro-Democrat Buffalo Republic wrote that any Democrat who had been infected with Taylor mania and had forsaken their faith and run after strange gods should reflect upon the fate of the Democratic Party and return to the fold. In the aftermath of the Signal editorial, Taylor's back was against the wall. If he remained non-committal, he might lose his base of support. Taylor was not a second Washington. He did want the White House, and to get it, in the autumn of 1847, he crossed over the nonpartisan line. Taylor wrote two more letters that found their way into national papers. He declared himself a decided Whig, and shortly after, the Richmond Whig wrote that all doubts to his political affinities should be put to rest. As the Whigs united around Zachary Taylor, the Democrats were at war over a controversial issue that threatened to tear them apart. In the 1844 contest, President Polk had promised the Democratic Party that he wouldn't run for a second term. In his day, he was the youngest president ever to serve, but midway through his first term, Polk was worn down and his health was failing him. His years of fighting in favor of Western expansion had exhausted him. And the midterm elections of 1846 revealed that the country was ready for a change. Democrats maintained control in the Senate, but they lost the House in part because of Mr. Polk's war with Mexico. Polk's expansionist agenda had all but split the Democratic Party in two, and nowhere was this rift more evident than in the state of New York. In September of 1847, New York Democrats gathered in Syracuse for the state's Democratic Convention. The main issue on the table was whether or not to adopt the Wilmot Proviso as part of the New York State platform. New York Democrats were split into two factions over the issue, the Barn Burners and the Hunkers. The barn burners largely argued in favor of the proviso. To them, slavery was a moral and political evil, and it was New York's duty to limit its expansion. The hunkers argued that Polk party line. Slavery was a state right. The proviso was nothing more than an assault on President Polk and an attempt to stir up disunity among the Democratic ranks. At the 1847 New York State Convention, the hunkers and the barn burners fought it out over the issue. The Hunkers won the argument, and the proviso never made it into New York's platform. The Hunkers then selected 36 delegates to send to the National Democratic Convention, set to take place in May of 1848. In response, though, the barn burners went into open revolt. They refused to accept the outcome of the state convention, and in early 1848, they nominated 36 delegates of their own. Pro-proviso movements cropped up in several other states, including Ohio and Massachusetts, but these movements failed to gain significant traction, in large part because party regulars were quick to shut them down, nominally for party unity, but every time they left behind a trail of disaffected Democrats. Tensions worsened in February of 1848, when word of a peace treaty with Mexico reached Washington. As part of the terms, Mexico ceded to the U.S. Alta California, Nuevo Mexico, and all disputed land in Texas down to the Rio Grande. These Mexican states incorporated all or parts of what is today California, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. It was a massive expansion of U.S. territory, but the peace treaty pressed the questions of the proviso and catapulted the Democratic Party into what Illinois Representative Stephen A. Douglas called a glorious state of confusion. In May of 1848, the Democratic Convention was held in Baltimore. In the lead-up to the convention, over a half-dozen regional candidates emerged, most with strong bases of local support and well-funded political machinery already in place, but there was not a clear front-runner. One New York politician tried to use the crowded field to his advantage, former President Martin Van Buren, the de facto leader of the Barn Burners. 
Van Buren was, in large part, the architect of the Democratic Party. At the time of the convention, he was in his late 60s, but he wielded a considerable amount of influence, especially in New York. Van Buren was still bitter over the 1844 Democratic Convention. He had been denied his party's nomination by the dark horse candidacy of James K. Polk. In 1848, Van Buren was determined to win the Democratic nomination and, short of that, to extract his revenge on the very party he created. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West, from famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Just before Halloween in 1985, a pipe bomb exploded in an office building in downtown Salt Lake City, killing a man and leaving the entire city on edge. As the smoke cleared and investigators began the search for answers, it became terrifyingly clear that this was just the beginning. Suddenly, looking for the culprit became a race against time. Hi, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, host of the new true crime history podcast, American Criminal. We take you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side to the American dream. In our latest season, the desperate hunt for a killer leads the authorities through the complicated world of historic document collectors, and eventually right to the door of the Mormon church. Listen to American Criminal, The Salt Lake City Bombings, wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com. In April of 1848, one month before the Democratic National Convention, Martin Van Buren wrote what would come to be called the Barnburner Manifesto. In it, Van Buren condemned the extension of slavery and maintained that the 36 Barnburner delegates and not their hunker opponents were the rightful delegates of New York. The convention's committee tried to strike a deal between the two warring factions by offering a compromise. Both delegations would be seated as long as they promised to accept the outcome of the convention. The hunkers agreed. The Barnburners refused. The question of who would be seated was ultimately left to the assembly at large. In Baltimore, in May of 1848, after days of heated debate, the assembly passed a motion to seat one half of each New York delegation. Both the hunkers and the barn burners remained at the convention, but they refused to accept the outcome. One Southern attendee went on the record, telling the press the New York delegation was hell-bent on making mischief for the National Democrats in revenge for the action of the Baltimore Convention of 1844. Martin Van Buren himself did not attend, but he sent surrogates, including his son John, to speak on his behalf and advocate for his candidacy. But on May 23, 1848, the first ballot revealed that Martin Van Buren was playing from behind. Senator Lewis Cass of Michigan was the clear frontrunner, and he won the nomination on the fourth ballot, 
earning 179 out of 250 votes. The 66-year-old senator from Michigan gave the Democrats a strong answer to Zachary Taylor. Cass was a veteran of the War of 1812, but unlike Taylor, he was also a distinguished statesman. He had served as the governor of Michigan, the secretary of war, and the U.S. ambassador to France. He had worked under the Jackson administration, which gave him the added benefit of being a Jackson man. And on the question of the proviso, Cass advocated for the doctrine of popular sovereignty, arguing that the people of the new territories themselves, not the federal government, should decide the slavery question. Van Buren, of course, knew his candidacy was a long shot. He had instructed the barn burners in the event of his defeat to walk out of the convention in protest. After Cass's nomination, the barn burners followed orders. That night, the convention reconvened and nominated Cass's running mate, former U.S. Representative General William O. Butler of Kentucky. Next, the Democrats attempted to adopt an official party platform. It had a familiar thesis, the federal government is one of limited powers. The platform was an extension of the policies of James K. Polk, but for many Democrats, it was not enough. When the party platform endorsed popular sovereignty, things got heated. It's May 1848 at the Democratic National Convention in Baltimore. The convention is in full swing, and the Universalist Church in Baltimore is packed with delegates. The chair of the convention reads from the party platform. Congress has no power under the Constitution to interfere with or control the domestic institutions of the several states. As the chairman reads the words of the platform, two Alabama delegates sit together in the back of the room, Congressman P.A. Ray and Congressman William Lowndes Yancey. The chair continues. Any attempt to induce Congress to interfere with questions of slavery are calculated to lead to the most alarming and dangerous consequences. As he listens, Yancey is simmering with rage. He grits his teeth and clenches his fist. For months, Yancey has been hard at work co-authoring a series of resolutions known collectively as the Alabama Platform. He wrote troves of letters to Democratic leaders, including Lewis Cass, imploring them to support him, but to no avail. Next to him, Congressman Ray shares Yancey's frustration. This platform cannot stand, Mr. Yancey. Popular sovereignty is tantamount to surrender to Northern interests. Yancey's face is blood red with anger. He's known for his temper, a flaw that's moved him to violence and driven him to stand in a duel with a fellow congressman. But Yancey is smart enough to know that fits of rage do not affect change in the political arena. Only wily acumen can accomplish that. And furious though he is, Yancey has a strategy. Barring any objections, the chair now moves to call an official vote. Enacting his plan, Yancey rises to his feet. Mr. Chairman. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Alabama. On behalf of the people of Alabama, I would like to propose an amendment. Proceed, Mr. Yancey. I move to include in the party's doctrine the entirety of the Alabama platform. Order, order. Mr. Yancey, the Alabama platform has already been thoroughly debated before this delegation. Mr. Chairman, Alabama asks but two simple things. One, that this body declare unequivocally that the federal government possesses no authority to restrict slavery in the territories. And two, that the members of the Democratic delegation vote for no man, president or vice president, who will not promise to oppose the restriction of slavery in any form. Mr. Yancey, as you know, this body has already chosen its nominee, Mr. Lewis Cass. The gentleman from Michigan heretofore selected above the protestations from the Alabama delegation must pledge to use the powers of the presidency to protect Southern interests. Order, order. If he will not, 
then this body must compel his cooperation. I only ask for a proper vote, Mr. Chairman. So be it, Mr. Yancey. As the chairman calls the vote, Yancey takes a seat. The rest of the Alabama delegation stares daggers at him. I believe we've upset our friends, Mr. Yancey. I care not, Mr. Ray. Today, we draw a line in the sand. When the votes are counted, Yancey's motion was soundly defeated 216 to 36. In an act of defiance, Yancey and Ray stormed out of the Universalist Church and left the convention in protest. It might be said that Yancey's actions were the birth of a Southern sectionalist movement. He drew a clear line between the interests of the South and the unity of the party. His dramatic departure from the convention was a symbol of the South's resistance to the winds of change, and it was an omen of what lay in store for the Democratic Party and the country. After the convention, Democrats were in a tailspin. Many Southerners in the pro-slavery bloc, including William Yancey, found the party platform intolerable. Yancey would lead an anti-caste movement in Alabama. He would abandon his party's nominee and eventually throw his support behind Zachary Taylor. His movement failed to gain national traction, but it clearly showed that the Democrats were not united behind the Cass-Butler ticket. On the other side of the political spectrum, Van Buren and the Barnburners were also looking for a new home. In Van Buren's mind, Lewis Cass was more the same, another polk, a continuation of his expansionist anti-proviso agenda. The Barnburners would not support Cass. The little magician would have to begin plotting his next move. In June of 1848, one month after the Democratic Convention, the Whig National Convention convened in Philadelphia. On the third ballot, the Whigs officially selected Zachary Taylor as their candidate of choice. The Whigs stuck to their strategy. Taylor was a second Washington, a political outsider who had served the people dutifully, just as he had in the Mexican-American War. On the question of slavery, Taylor would remain largely silent in an attempt to skirt the issue and keep Northern and Southern Whigs united. But while Taylor avoided slavery, his vice presidential running mate, former New York Congressman Millard Fillmore, had to confront the issue head-on. In July of 1848, Fillmore was under attack. A Southern Whig, Alabama's John Gale, had questioned Fillmore's stance on slavery, suggesting that Fillmore was an abolitionist, a dirty word in 1848 America. On July 31st of that month, in an effort to quiet any controversy among Southern pro-slavery Whigs, Fillmore wrote a letter to Gale, defending his record. While he personally thought slavery was an evil, it was none of the federal government's business. Fillmore wrote, The whole power of that question was vested in the several states where the institution was tolerated. Fillmore was walking a delicate line. He needed to assure Southern Whigs he would not try to eradicate slavery while also paying lip service to Northern Whigs who largely abhorred the practice. Anti-slavery elements in the North were growing tired of Fillmore's brand of doublespeak and even more tired of Taylor's silence on what they considered the most important issue facing America. These anti-slavery Whigs found common cause with disaffected Democrats like the Barnburners in New York. A new political faction began to take shape. In the election of 1848, the Free Soil Party emerged. To push their agenda, they needed a candidate with national name recognition, a skilled politician who could guide their burgeoning political faction and effect real change in Washington. They would find their leader in former President Martin Van Buren. In August of 1848, a hodgepodge of disgruntled Whigs, Democrats, and members of a small anti-slavery faction called the Liberty Party met in Buffalo, New York for the first ever Free Soil Party National Convention. The Free Soil Party was not a monolith. 
The Liberty Faction advocated for the abolition of slavery, but the majority of Free Soilers took a more moderate posture. Slavery was an evil, but the real issue was the growing power of the Southern states. The goal was limiting slavery and the South's power by passing a law in the spirit of the Wilmot Proviso. As one disaffected Whig congressman stated at the Buffalo Convention, Friends, we must unite and take up the glove where the South throw it down. Another Free Soiler proclaimed that true anti-slavery men must forget party memory and prejudices for the sake of the cause. The Free Soiler Convention was not a small affair. 20,000 attendees gathered to hear debates and speeches, including one from a former slave turned statesman, Frederick Douglass. On the first day of that convention, Free Soilers codified their political platform. It was pro-proviso, anti-establishment. The platform didn't mention hot-button issues like the Three-Fifths Compromise or the existence of slavery in the nation's capital. But even for the abolitionists in the Liberty Party, the Free Soiler platform was better than the deafening silence from Zachary Taylor and the cries of popular sovereignty from Lewis Cass and the Democrats. The platform adopted, Free Soilers turned their attention to selecting a nominee. Their choice was, by all accounts, an unusual one. Martin Van Buren was not a friend to the anti-slavery movement. At times, he had appeared indifferent at best, and a close examination of his record revealed a politician hostile to the abolitionist movement, a partisan who was quick to bow to Southern interests in the name of personal political gain. As one Free Soiler wrote, Mr. Van Buren has some sins to answer to. But the former president also gave the Free Soilers something they desperately needed, credibility and name recognition. Van Buren also held sway over the barn burners, a large chunk of the Free Soil movement. In the end, Van Buren's popularity won the day. To balance the ticket and to assuage the concerns of the abolitionists, the Free Soilers picked for their vice president a decidedly anti-slavery man, Charles Francis Adams, the son of John Quincy Adams, ironically one of Martin Van Buren's longtime political foes. The Free Soil Party quickly adopted their slogan, Van Buren and Free Soil, Adams and Liberty. In the 1848 contest, Van Buren and the Free Soilers would not have the muscle to win the election, but they would wield enough power to play the part of spoiler. Martin Van Buren's presence in the field would deny the Democrats the White House. The little magician, as he was called, would finally have his revenge. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others, ad-free, with bonus content, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. 
History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. On October 1st, 1848, the free soil-friendly New York Evening Post attacked Democrats and Whigs, dismissing the two parties as old and defunct. Another free soil paper called Whigs and Democrats the Pledged Guardians of the Slave Interest. But even as free soilers went on the attack in the press, they played defense as well. One free soil paper encouraged every anti-slavery man to stand with Van Buren in the desperate struggle for freedom and let Van Buren's political past be laid aside. Whigs and Democrats warred in the press as well. The Whigs attacked Lewis Cass's war record, reminding the people that Cass had played a part in one of the biggest blunders in the War of 1812, the shameful surrender of Detroit. Democrats accused Taylor of engaging in financial impropriety, alleging that the corrupt General Taylor had taken illegal payments for his service in the war at the taxpayer's expense. And late in the contest, the Taylor campaign was shocked by what modern politicos often call an October surprise. A bombshell letter, alleged to be from Zachary Taylor, surfaced in the press. The letter read, Gentlemen, I will not veto any bill that Congress may see fit to pass on internal policy. Yours, Z. Taylor. The letter, which was widely circulated in the press, was seen by many as clear evidence that Taylor would not veto the Wilmot Proviso if Congress pushed it through. It was a crushing blow to Taylor's candidacy, and it damaged him severely, especially in the South. Taylor's supporters were frustrated. For one thing, avoiding the subject of the proviso was the foundation of their campaign strategy. For another, the letter was a fake. It's unclear who wrote it or who leaked it to the press, but it's not a leap of imagination to assume that the letter came from Cass's supporters in the South. The letter did significant damage. Even after Taylor's supporters fought back in the press and denied the letter's authenticity, many in the South remained unconvinced. And the letter might have cost Taylor the election if it weren't for Martin Van Buren and the Free Soil Party. In the 1840s, politics in America was changing rapidly. In the 1844 election, 2.7 million Americans had voted, about 78% of eligible voters. Out of this growing engagement, new political factions emerged. Factions fed up with a political establishment and rallying behind two controversial issues the major parties largely ignored. In the elections of 1840 and 1844, the Anti-Slavery Liberty Party had run their presidential candidate, James Burney. In 1840, Burney received roughly 7,000 votes, far less than 1% of the total. But in 1844, Burney had won over 60,000 votes. In 1848, the Free Soil Party picked up where the Liberty Party left off. In the end, the nearly 300,000 votes cast by Free Soilers were enough to sway the outcome of the election. On Tuesday, November 7, 1848, for the first time in American history, the presidential election was held on the same day throughout every state in the Union. Years earlier, in January of 1845, Congress had passed a law that the Tuesday following the first Monday in November would henceforth be America's National Election Day. Taylor and Cass both won 15 states, but Taylor won the electoral vote 163 to 127. Martin Van Buren did not receive any electoral votes, 
but he won just over 10% of the national vote. In states like New York, Massachusetts, and Vermont, Free Soilers placed Van Buren second behind Taylor. By forcing Cass into third place in those key states, Van Buren blocked Cass's electoral path to the White House and handed the election to Zachary Taylor. But President Taylor had a colossal task before him. He inherited a divided country. His time in the White House was infected with partisan strife over slavery. And while as a candidate, Taylor had tried to sidestep the issue, as president, he would have no choice but to confront it. It's July 3rd, 1850 at the White House. President Zachary Taylor sits at his desk, poring over documents. The weight of the office has clearly taken its toll, as Taylor looks weary and frail. He's deeply troubled by an issue that threatens to obliterate the fragile peace holding the country together, a boundary dispute between Texas and the U.S. territory of New Mexico. Texas has claimed part of New Mexico's eastern border. A few weeks back, Taylor asked Congress to protect New Mexico's interests, but the pro-slavery crowd was none too happy. Mr. President, without so much as a knock, two Southern congressmen burst into Taylor's office, Robert Toombs and Alexander Stevens. Do they not teach you to knock in Georgia? Mr. President, on behalf of the people of Georgia, Mr. Toombs and I demand your audience. Mr. Stevens, Mr. Toombs, there are many proper channels to secure an audience with the President of the United States. I assure you, barging into his office is not one of them. But Stevens doesn't back down. Mr. President, as you well know, the New Mexico Territory is in the process of adopting a constitution which prohibits slavery. Yes, I am aware of that. Is it not, Mr. Stevens, the prerogative of the people of New Mexico to decide the slavery question for themselves? Is that not in keeping with the principles of your Democratic Party? Of course, Mr. President, but it is not the prerogative of the president to play favorites in matters such as these, nor is it his prerogative to disadvantage Texas for no other reason than she is friendly to the institution of slavery. Your concerns are noted, gentlemen. Toombs steps forward. Mr. President, Texas must be allowed her own boundaries. Taylor keeps his cool. He musters the strength to stand. I have made my views on the matter well known, gentlemen. What you ask is a deviation of Whig principles, and it is a betrayal of those who elected me to hold this office. That is the end of the discussion. Mr. President, this conversation is over, gentlemen. As the congressmen head for the door, Stevens leaves Taylor with a final word of warning. You may do as you please, Mr. President, but if you proceed with this course, the people of the South will never forgive you. During Taylor's presidency, sectional tensions over the question of slavery reached a boiling point. For many Southern men like Alexander Stevens and Robert Toombs, enough was enough. Stevens and Toombs would become leaders in the sectionalist movement in the South. They would push for secession, and they would go on to become vice president and secretary of state of the Confederacy. Zachary Taylor had hoped to cool the growing tensions over slavery and unite the country around his presidency. He would never get the chance. In July of 1850, just 16 months into his term, tragedy would strike. On July 4th, the day after Stevens and Toombs barged into Taylor's office, the president returned to the White House after a long day of glad-handing, public appearances, and a visit to the site of what would become the Washington Monument. Thirsty and hungry, Taylor drank water and, if legend is to be believed, ate a big bowl of cherries to satisfy his empty stomach. Not long after, he fell ill, racked by sharp abdominal pain. Five days later, the Baltimore Sun reported on Taylor's condition. 
we regret to learn that the indisposition of President Taylor yesterday assumed an alarming character. The next day, the Sun announced the tragic news of Taylor's death, writing that the nation will mourn the departure of a hero and patriot. The Sun quoted Taylor's final words, I am ready to meet death. I have endeavored faithfully to discharge my duty. I am sorry to leave my friends. Three days later, the Sun's reporting took on a conspiratorial tone. One dispatch read, There were other causes, besides merely eating and drinking, that operated fatally upon his system. The Sun reported that on July 3rd, two Southern altruists barged into Taylor's chambers and threatened him. The insinuation was clear. Taylor had been assassinated, if not by Stevens and Toombs directly, then by friends of the Southern cause. Though most contemporaries rejected the notion that Taylor had been assassinated, a cloud of suspicion hung over his death for well over a century. In 1991, Taylor's body was exhumed and examined by the state of Kentucky. The medical examiner put the question to rest, concluding, It is my opinion that President Zachary Taylor was not poisoned. After Taylor's tragic death, the Baltimore Sun wrote of his successor, Mr. Fillmore brings to the chair of office a wealth of experience, judgment, and consummate prudence. Millard Fillmore, the often mocked comptroller from New York, would need every ounce of judgment and prudence he could muster to prevent the fracturing country from tearing itself apart. During Fillmore's time in the White House, sectional tensions over the issue of slavery only increased. Fillmore would try to forge consensus between the two warring factions, but his attempts to bring the two sides together would only push the nation closer to the brink of civil war. This is episode 16 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1848, Old Rough and Ready. On the next episode, the election of 1852, the Compromise of 1850 signed into law by President Millard Fillmore further divides a divided nation and leaves both parties searching for new leaders. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details, and while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Barons. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by John Paul Green and Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck. 